Maybe they just did hand stuff. <laughs> I'm too sexy for this canema. Too sexy for this canema. Y'all need to be like the canema and take a look in the mirror. <laughs> if they weren't fun, they got killed off on the show. I had sex with Lydia, now I'm mute. That's how science works. <laughs> Just being able to find so much joy in Teen Wolf. Welcome to Return to Beacon Hills, a Teen Wolf Rewatch podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Calissa Mollis, and I'm joined by Kate Colvin and Will Wallace. Every week, we'll be watching and talking about the hit MTV series, one episode at a time. And this week, we're talking about season two, episode six, Frenemy. If you're watching Teen Wolf for the first time and you're worried about spoilers, have no fear. This podcast is broken up into two sections. Alpha and Beta. The Beta section is for first-timers who are just now finding this awesome series and don't want to be spoiled about what's to come. The second section, Alpha, is where we go full spoilers and talk about not just the current episode, but the entire Teen Wolf series as well as its place in the fandom. In the show notes of your podcast app of choice, you'll find time codes for the Alpha and Beta sections. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon at RTBH Podcast. There, our Wolfie patrons will gain access to awesome exclusives like early access to episodes, Full Moon AMAs, the Beacon Hills Movie Club, where we watch and provide commentary for movies starring the amazing cast of Teen Wolf and Fee featuring the work of our talented crew, as well as guest video interviews and a monthly watch party. So head on over to patreon.com slash RTBH podcast and join the pack. This week's Alpha Patron Howlouts go to Amy Edwards, Leilani Haberlin, and Jordan. Thanks guys for supporting the show. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at return to Beacon Hills at gmail.com. Today's episode title is Frenemy. It was written by Jeff Davis and directed by Russell Mulcahy. After the failed attack launched by Derek's pack, Allison continues to keep Lydia in the dark. Lydia finds the only person she can talk to is a mysterious classmate. The Canima temporarily paralyzes a group of people in a bar, including Danny, but it doesn't manage to kill anyone. Scott briefly traps Jackson and has Styles try to tell him what's going on, but Jackson is skeptical and their gambit leads to Jackson being reported missing. Chris and Gerard hatch a plan to pit the Canima against Derek and his betas. An unknown party steals Danny's tablet with the reconstructed footage of Jackson, and if Lydia's archaic Latin is better than Morel's, the person seems to not be the Canima's friend, but its master. Our favorite quote for this episode is from Style Stolinski, no surprise there, who said, I'm 147 pounds of pale skin and fragile bone. Sarcasm is my only defense. I relate to that hard. <laughs> and we have three honorable mentions, all of which are conversations. The first is between Scott and Styles. Scott says, dude, everyone in here is a dude. I think we're at a gay club. And Styles says, man. Nothing gets past those keen werewolf senses, huh, Scott? <laughs> the next is between Lydia and that mysterious classmate. The classmate says, maybe I wanted to kiss you. Lydia says, maybe I don't want you to. He says, does that mean maybe I could? And Lydia says, if you want me to punch you in the throat. Oh, That is good advice. Anyone who might get approached by someone wanting to kiss them and they don't want to. Yeah. Go for the eyes, go for the throat, go for the dick. Yep, that Wolfies is our advice. You're welcome. And the last honorable mention is between Styles and his dad. 
Styles says, what do you mean, what am I doing here? It's a club. It's a club. We were clubbing, you know, at the club. The sheriff says, not exactly your type of club. Styles says, uh, well, dad, there's a conversation that we, but the sheriff cuts him off and says, you're not gay. And Styles, very offended, says, what? I could be. <laughs> it's a wonderful moment. It's just so good. Styles and Stalinsky's rapport is always great. Like, I just love it. It's so much fun. The episode begins with a flashback of the last full moon where Jackson tried to film himself transforming. It turns out that he succeeded. He sat straight up in bed and looked at the camera with glowing eyes. He transformed into a lizard creature before running out of frame and, presumably, going out to kill someone. It's just that a mysterious someone edited out this part of the video. Okay, I could watch him do anything. I feel like Jackson should have done a little strip tease at the start of his home movie. <laughs> just a little just a little Easter egg for future Jackson. That is definitely something Jackson would do. What song do you think he'd strip to? I'm trying to think of one that is like, I'm too sexy, but like more recent. I was actually just going to say I'm too sexy. That's a good one. That kind of energy for sure. I'm too sexy for this canima. Too sexy for this camera. Danny puts his iPad, which holds the reconstructed video, in the trunk of his car. He texts Jackson to let him know that he has it ready and that, true to his word, he never watched it. Danny's too good. But careless with his electronics. He just threw that tablet in the trunk of his car with no case on it or anything. The thing was just going to be like, you know, sliding around as he was driving. Yep. <laughs> Lydia and Allison sit in Allison's car. Lydia desperately wants Allison to explain to her what's going on, but Allison is too focused on ensuring Lydia's silence. She dodges Lydia's questions and insists that Lydia promise not to say anything that could compromise Allison's secret ongoing relationship with Scott. Who cares about that? I know. I don't understand why Allison doesn't give her some information. I mean, Lydia isn't frustrated that Allison wants her to keep her relationship a secret. Like, that's fine. She's frustrated that Allison isn't telling her anything else. Yeah, but Allison's just worried about Scott getting hurt by her parents. It probably shouldn't be a number one priority, but it is. I love Allison, but she's being a really shitty friend here. I mean, does she think that Lydia is going to like go straight to her parents and be like, oh my God, do you know that, you know, Allison and Scott are totally dating? I, I don't understand what telling Lydia has to do with keeping the relationship a secret. Yeah. Like the two don't seem to connect in mm. any way. Exactly. They're totally unrelated issues. I agree. Lydia angrily promises not to say anything about Allison's relationship, which is nothing. Allison begs her to try and remember what it feels like to be so in love, describing how she sometimes feels like she can't breathe until she's with Scott. That's still not relevant to any of Lydia's questions. Allison's just distracting her at this point. Lydia already promised not to say anything about the relationship. Allison's just bulldozing right past as if Lydia had threatened to spill their secret. It's like in a comedy, you know, when a character asks another character to do something and expect them to say no. So they start moving into their little persuasion speech before they realize the person actually said yes and they could stop trying to convince them now. She said, okay, Allison, you can stop gaslighting her now and answer her questions. There's so much irony here, given what Allison said last season about how she hates feeling helpless, you know, when she's talking to Kate. And I've said it before that one of the core themes of Teen Wolf is power and what happens when you don't have it but want it or what happens when you suddenly get it. And part of that is a question of whether you share it once you have it. Some of the characters share power when they have it. Scott, Styles, even Derek to some degree. But there are also characters who gain it and then use it against other people like the Argents, 
Jackson, Isaac, and Erica. Lydia doesn't get it until later Wolfies, but stay tuned. Lydia says that although she's had boyfriends, she's never had one like that. Oh, poor Lydia. Meanwhile, in downtown Beacon Hills, Scott and Styles try to track the Canima. Derek also chases the Canima, though there's not a lot of working together. I love how this scene looks. It's fantastic. Very cool. The three of them soon realize that there's yet another party chasing the Canima, Chris and Gerard Argent. Chris manages to shoot the Canima with a handgun. No, no, keep shooting, buddy. Haven't you seen any horror movies? I know those exist <laughs> in your universe because we've seen the video store and there are horror movies in it. You keep wailing on the bad guy until there is brain matter. I feel like the reason he stopped when the Canima was down is because he saw Derek and he's trying to find him again to shoot him too. Yeah, it's like a two for one deal for Chris. Like, oh, Canima. Oh, Derek. Just shoot them both. Yeah, because once he once he shoots the Canima and the Canima's on the ground, he just starts looking around. And I feel like Derek has to be who he's looking for. I don't know what else he would be looking around for. The Canima that he came for is already down. There's nothing to look for besides Derek. Right. This is a dumb strategy. I feel like he should have just let them keep like duking it out and see like, you know, if one could just, you know, take care of the other and then he could take on the survivor. Oh, don't worry. We're getting to that. Unfortunately, the Canima recovers and gets up while Chris is looking away. I would have loved for the Canima to sneak into his car and steal it. <laughs> <laughs> like, Grand, Grand Theft Lizard. That would have been... Awesome. Just awesome. <laughs> he has like the door hanging open everything. It would just been really funny. I'm pretty <laughs> sure he's got a th- opposable thumb still. So, Oh, yeah. But what the Canima actually does is move past Gerard, who openly watches it and doesn't attack. It looked like he was trying to hug the Canima. Come on. Come on, lizard boy. Bring it in. Bring it in right now. <laughs> Scott has a brief but sufficiently awkward run-in with the Argents as is all of his interactions with the Argents outside of Allison. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) You know what he's thinking, right? Where do I get that short sleeve, long sleeve combo? Probably a good deal at Macy's. My mom does all my shirt shopping. You you guys are both spot on with those voices. (laughs) Nailed it. Nailed it. Michael Hogan and I are basically the same. Despite all the parties closing in, the Canima gets away. The teaser ends there. I love Lydia's boots in this opening sequence. I did not notice them. They're very long. Yeah, they're cute. Scott tries to follow the Canima, but he says he doesn't think it has a scent. Styles tries to reason out why Jackson passed Derek's venom test. Maybe because it wasn't a very good test? We're just going off of how snakes work? Derek, much like many people on the internet, didn't cite his sources for that one. So I don't know. Was that just sort of like... This is one of those things that feels true. Well, before the hail fire in the house burned down, he watched Discovery Channel every single day after school. Aw, yeah. baby Derek. Styles thinks Jackson passed the test because he is always either the Canima or himself, never both at the same time. So while he's Jackson, he can be poisoned by Canima venom because he isn't the Canima. Unfortunately, that doesn't help them track him, but they catch a quick glimpse of the Canima slithering into a nearby building. That's going to violate some health codes. When Scott catches the scent of Armani and notices Danny standing in line to get into that same building, a club called The Jungle, he and Styles consider that Canima Jackson might have noticed too. I love that Armani bit. It's a fantastic callback. We actually have a bar called The Jungle here. Sadly, it's for the straights. Oh, boo. Though Scott and Styles don't manage to get into the club the old-fashioned way, Scott is able to break the handle on the back door and get them inside. We also have a bar here called The Back Door. 
It is not for straights. Scott's strength really comes and goes. Same thing that happened on Buffy. Buffy's strength comes and goes. It's plot strength. It just depends on what the plot needs. Yeah. Inside, the club is loud and crowded. There's one guy in the background that's just like pumping. He's he's like, there's no music. I have no idea what kind of beat I'm supposed to be doing this to. This pump, <laughs> this pump, this pump. <laughs> They're going to lose their liquor license serving to underage kids like that, though. Oh, come on. I'm sure serving to minors is the Beacon Hills bread and butter. That just feels right. Yeah. Well, they've got bigger issues to worry about than underage drinking. The bartender encourages Danny, who's still hung up over his ex, who's also at the club, to go dance with the stranger who's been eyeing him. That's right. They broke up. Yeah. Off screen romance. I think they said his name was Damon. Does that sound right to you guys? It is correct. Also played by Damon Jackson. That's right. Damon Jackson, the uh, script coordinator. Scott and Styles go to the bar and try to order beers, but the bartender isn't fooled by their flimsy fake IDs. I wonder if it's because they pulled it out of their Velcro wallets. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not a good sign. I could totally see Styles keeping his in like one of those duct tape wallets. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. A hundred percent. Right? Styles is adorably salty when a guy down the bar buys a drink. For Scott. That's costume supervisor Danny Flores, right? That is. What a handsome fella on a handsome show. Awesome. I love all the little cameos of behind the scenes people. They are great. I love this moment. It's so great. Also, I feel like Dylan O'Brien in this scene feels very Jim Carrey. Like we were talking about this when we did the mask for our Alpha Watch Party. That's some aggressive slurping he does to his Coke. Styles <laughs> is always aggressive with food and drinks. That is accurate. Scott and Styles finally catch sight of Danny. Dancing with a guy. Moving on up. Moving on up. <laughs> they also catch sight of the Canima prowling along the ceiling. I believe that was a pickup that I was a part of for season two. And that ceiling was actually not a ceiling. It was a floor with stuff on it. Oh, wait, you were there? Were you dancing in the crowd, Will? No, 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 no. I was, uh, I was only there for the ceiling part, sadly. Too bad. Yeah. I would have liked to have been a wallflower at that club. Would have been good. <laughs> Meanwhile, at Lydia's house, Lydia calls for her dog, Prada, to come back inside. She gets nervous when Prada doesn't respond until the mysterious boy from her class appears holding the papillon in his arms. What do you guys think of her having a dog named Prada? Makes complete sense. It's on brand. Yeah. See, I feel like she does it for the benefit of others. I feel like, you know, personally, she would probably name Prada after someone like, you know, scientific or mathematically genius, like a woman. Like my cat mm. named Mersenne after a French mathematician. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I feel like, you know, if not doing for benefit of others that yeah. she would have named her dog. That's an interesting hypothesis. Yes, I, I think it's correct. I bet on the, the tag, like it says Prada and then below that's like another another name. Prada is actually her dog's middle name. There you go. <laughs> it's like Archimedes Prada Martin. <laughs> I love it. Scott and Styles scramble to protect Danny from the Canima. Okay, why do they think the Canima is going to kill Danny? Because the Canima is Jackson and Danny and Jackson are best friends. Yeah, exactly. Why would he want to kill Danny? Because of Teen Wolf reasons. <laughs> okay. The only reasons you need. As the Canima moves through the crowd, a body starts dropping to the floor, paralyzed, including Danny. I love this shot. How it's like low to the ground looking up. It's fantastic. Very innovative. Derek shows up shifted and chases the Canima. 
he's fully wolfed out in the middle of a club. <laughs> I, I guess he's just like, it's fine. They love me here. Uh, I challenge that. Derek would not be into the club scene. No, he wouldn't. But they would love him there. Yes, they would. They catch up with the cannibal behind the club, but it shifted back into a very naked Jackson. I feel like Stiles' first response would be, he's naked. I'm not touching him. And it's not a gay thing. It's a Jackson thing. <laughs> I, I still that. hate him. But it's not a gay thing. It's not a gay thing. It's a Mac thing. Back at the Martin house, Lydia asks her classmate for an explanation as to why he showed up at her house in the middle of the night. He says that he lives nearby and heard Prada barking. He also tries to ask her how she's doing after the episode that she had in class, causing Lydia to get defensive and insist that she isn't crazy and whatever episodes she has, she's still better off than, quote, one of those desperate Vicodin-popping wrist cutters at school. Somehow, the situation leads the boy to make a move toward Lydia and break up the possibility of kissing her, which she promptly turns down. Next, he brings up holding her hand, but she finds that childish. I've seen someone do a video of her saying that and then have all the moments she holds Styles' hand later. That's our studio mention for this week, Wolfies. Yes. You're welcome. Also, the line, one of those desperate Vicodin popping wrist cutters is a bit mean, Lydia. Yeah, I would say so. I think you should, you know, continue those sessions with Morel. I, I did like his response though, where he was like, oh, is that what all the other girls are like? <laughs> Finally, the boy settles for giving her a purple flower and trying to get her to promise she'll keep it. She says, if she doesn't, she'll just lie to him about it. In other failed romance news, Scott tries asking Danny if anything weird happened to him that day before he got paralyzed from the neck down, but a paramedic tells Scott they need to get Danny to the hospital. Scott settles for just one question. Is Danny okay? But since his ex also got paralyzed, Danny's feeling just fine. Danny, who hurt you? Who hurt you? He's too good for everyone, Will. It's very true. It's a very cute moment here, though. It, it like, is great. <laughs> it's really A little bit funny. petty. Just a just little bit of petty mayonnaise energy here. <laughs> petty mayonnaise. Oh, I love that. That's wonderful. With Jackson passed out in the back of the Jeep, Styles has to distract his dad. I love how he flails his way out of the car. Yeah, maybe he should consider driving something a little less immediately recognizable if he's going to be showing up at all these crime scenes. The iconic blue Jeep. Styles tries to cover with his dad, saying that he and Scott were just clubbing. But the sheriff doesn't buy it because it's a gay club and Styles isn't gay. Styles insists that he could be. Now, as much as I consider this to be yet more canonical evidence that he is a bisexual character, and I do, I also love how he sounds sincerely offended by the sheriff's certainty that he couldn't be gay, as if gayness were something he's just been told he could never achieve. It reminds me of that Tumblr meme, you know, some are born gay, some achieve gayness, and some have gayness thrust upon them. He's so upset that he, that it's been implied that he could not achieve gayness. I could! I could if I wanted to. <laughs> it's funny that you bring up Tumblr because I read like a Tumblr analysis of this scene where someone, I, I wish I could remember who it was, but they were saying that they feel like the sheriff says that like, there's no way Styles is there dressed like that because he knows how Styles is whenever he's like trying to like get the attention of someone. And like, you know, he's had all this experience of Styles like being into Lydia and like, you know, maybe dressing like really nicely if he was planning to like go somewhere and like try to like flirt with someone. And he just doesn't think that he would show up there looking like that. If he was going to go to the club to try to get with someone, he would come correct, basically. Yeah. The conversation continues to devolve when the sheriff points out that this is the second crime scene he's come to where Styles has mysteriously shown up. 
Okay, I feel like it's got to be a lot more than that. Yeah, I think he just means the last couple of weeks because we know there's more. I mean, come on. He was there when they found the dead body. Maybe Styles should say that Scott's exploring some stuff, though. There was at least one guy in there who wanted to help Scott achieve his coming of gay. As you know, Dad, he and Allison recently broke up, so... So he's looking into some stuff. He's looking into his options. Yeah, just gonna try some new things, see what works. And the show should have done that with Scott. Absolutely. And everyone. And everyone. Styles then claims that he and Scott came to the club with Danny to cheer him up since he and his boyfriend recently split. This the sheriff accepts. Danny is handsome. That does check out. That conversation was still mainly about him being bi. No question. Chris and Gerard also discussed the events at the jungle. Reportedly, there were seven victims paralyzed and the rumor is drugs since so many told the authorities they saw some sort of demonic monster on the dance floor. Chris also asked Gerard about earlier when the cannabis circled him and he did nothing. While popping a pill, Gerard answers that he has some intuition as to what the creature might be and if he's right, it follows certain rules. Does Chris ever wonder what kind of pills Gerard's always popping? I mean, yeah, he's old. Olds take pills. That's a thing. <laughs> Wow, Will. Chris asks whether Gerard thinks they need to put a hold on Derek to get this figured out. Gerard confirms with Chris that this is the first time he's seen Derek since Kate's death and that the only other connection they have is with Isaac Leahy. Gerard then suggests that if the Kanama is bad enough to bring Derek out of his little hole, then they might have an opportunity because the best way to eliminate a threat is to get someone to do it for you. So do you guys think Gerard is proposing that they use the Kanima to kill Derek or use Derek to kill the Kanima or both? I think it's whatever comes up first. Yeah. They're like, what, a, you know, what will kill the other? And then we'll just take on whoever's left. Exactly. And it's so crazy that they treat Derek like that. Like, I know Derek's kind of a dick and everything, but like the Canada murdered a bunch of people. And it's just so insane to me that they're like, yeah, this is how we'll solve the problem. We have two things we want to get rid of. One is a mass murderer and the other one is Derek. Handsome. I'm sorry, what, Will? What? I was trying to say that I'm pretty sure the Argents uh, live by the old eye for an eye. And since Peter's not around, they need to kill the only remaining hail that we know of. That makes sense. Does it? I mean, for the Argents. Exactly. Not exactly sane. As far as an eye for an eye goes, like, she killed them first. And then they killed her second. Ugh. Of course, Scott and Styles have a very different problem from Chris and Gerard. They already have the Canima, or rather Jackson, and they don't know what to do with him. They can't take him to Scott's because Scott's mom is there. But is she? Seven people were just paralyzed. Surely she's got to go to the hospital. She's the only nurse. <laughs> Styles votes for killing Jackson. So in other words, Styles agrees with Derek. Yep, most of the time he does. Interesting. 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 When Scott promptly vetoes the killing Jackson plan, Styles comes up with another idea, one that also involves breaking the law, but with less homicide. They stash Jackson in the back of a stolen county prison transport vehicle where he wakes up shirtless, cuffed, and immediately furious. I hate when I wake up like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, damn those pecs. Must be cold in there. Looks like you could cut glass with those things. <laughs> Wow, Will. Wow. Don't act like you weren't thinking that. <laughs> Styles brings Jackson food. When Jackson responds with intense anger, Styles lets him know that he had to put Jackson's pants on him, which he did not enjoy. As I already pointed out, he did not want to touch a naked Jackson. Styles also tries to explain that he and Scott are actually doing Jackson a favor because he's killing people to death. But Jackson is skeptical. 
He reminds Styles that his parents will be looking for him. But Styles thought of that, so he sent a text from Jackson's phone saying that he's fine. I feel like whenever Styles gets really like stressed, he like can't even use his words properly. He's like, "We're clubbing at the club. You're killing people to death." <laughs> that is true. I think it's because the more stressed he gets, the less his already tenuous brain-to-mouth filter works. And so he hasn't had time to formulate words good before they come out. <laughs> Turns out that Styles' confidence in that department was misplaced because the Whitmores have gone to the sheriff's station to report Jackson missing. Jackson's dad shows the sheriff the text message with treats, stayed at a friend's house last night, everything fine, love you. And the response is, we love you very much. You're a great son. We don't think of you as our adopted son. You have nothing to prove. It's so adorable that Styles put love you. <laughs> I know, but Styles, you should always read the previous messages to get the speech patterns down. I know. It's just, what kind of kidnapper are you, Styles? <laughs> I know. That's just impersonation 101. Mm -hmm. You don't just start fresh, even if you are time crunched. Just do a little bit of scrolling. Mm -hmm. I know TV and movies always want to make it out as if someone deletes every conversation they've ever had. Immediately you know, after having immediately, it. Immediately. Anytime someone gets a text, it's always like the first thing that's under that person's name. There's no previous conversations. I hate that in movies. Yes. <laughs> no one does that. No one. Styles would make a terrible catfish. <laughs> Mr. Whitmore then explains to the sheriff that Jackson hasn't said I love you to his parents since they told him he was adopted 11 years ago. Also, he doesn't have friends. He just has Danny, and Danny's in the hospital. It's not untrue. Gerard interrogates Allison, asking with whom she's studying tonight. She says she's studying with Lydia for a world history midterm. Gerard says that he loves history, especially military history. Y'all bet. Shocker. Gerard goes on to ask whether Allison knows anything about why Jackson didn't come home last night, which he knew because the Whitmores called the school. Allison claims she has no idea. Still not a very good liar, I see. Maybe she's adopted too and didn't get the Argent's liar gene. <laughs> Gerard says he knows that teenagers always want to protect their friends, and he believes Allison would lie for hers. Yeah, but Jackson's not one of them. Exactly. Do some research. It comes and goes. That's like true. Scott's strength. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Gerard puts his fingers on the pulse in Allison's throat as he continues his interrogation and says he felt Allison's pulse jump. Yeah, well, because my grandpa's weirdly groping my throat, get the fuck off me. This is such a Kate move. Yeah, it is. Always the bad touch with that family. Yeah. Like, nah. Ugh. Stop making people uncomfortable. Allison says it was because Gerard is scaring her. He pulls back, demeanor drastically changing. He apologizes for using those tactics and tells her she can go back to class. Okay, Principal Grandpa. <laughs> As she heads out into the hallway, Allison notices a slew of newly installed security cameras. Presumably, this is courtesy of Principal Argent's regime. I mean, cameras are smart at this point. The school gets destroyed all the time. Yeah. Plus, if they're the only ones reviewing the footage, the Argents can still bring their guns to school like they love to do. Win-win. Back in class, Allison tries to get Scott's attention, but she's interrupted when her mother walks in the door. Victoria explains that she's the substitute because the regular teacher was feeling ill today. Because we electrocuted them? Like we electrocuted your principal? Excuse me, former principal? She even calls on Scott to catch her up on where the class currently is. Meanwhile, Styles is stuck in the back of the stolen police vehicle, giving a still skeptical Jackson the lowdown on his lizard form. Maybe she should have called on someone who was actually passing the class to catch him up. <laughs> oh, oh, ouch. Burn. Shots fired. Also, how did Styles get stuck babysitting Jackson all day? Yeah, I don't know. It's a 
an awful idea. What if something happened? At least Scott has a better chance of defending himself in a fight. Styles goes on to explain how Kanema Jackson trapped him and Derek in the school pool because, you know, the Kanema is just a big old Derek shipper. Captain of that ship. Yeah. You know why it was the pool? Because what do you do on bodies of water? You put ships on them. Styles finishes by relaying how Kanima Jackson tried to kill Danny. Jackson asks, why would he want to kill his best friend? And Styles says, that's what Scott's trying to figure out as they speak. This should definitely be swapped. Styles is the one who should be figuring things out, and Scott should be there with Jackson in case Jackson attacked. Yeah, no, that's yeah. the way it should be. As the four o'clock bell rings, the students shuffle out of the classroom that is temporarily victorious. Four o'clock? That's yeah, awful. They- yeah, that's weird. They don't get out of school until four. Like, what? First, we've heard of this, right? Yeah, this is like the first time on the show this has ever happened. This is very weird. As Allison tries to leave along with the others, Victoria pulls her aside and says they've noticed several phone calls between her and the odd one, Styles. <laughs> Old bobblehead. <laughs> I, I, I love that. She's like, yeah, we, we've noticed a lot of calls between you and um, the odd one, Styles. <laughs> the odd one with the weirdo name. Oh, Allison smoothly covers by saying that they'd asked her to keep an eye on Lydia, and that's gotta mean talking to Styles sometimes because he's always around Lydia. He's had a crush on her since like the third grade. Victoria acknowledges that it must be hard for Allison. Yeah, having her as a mom. Victoria suggests that Allison focus on how strong it makes her that she's able to resist Scott even when talking to his best friend and having to see Scott in class, especially when Allison is compared to all these other girls who let their high school careers be defined by hoping that boys will take them to the prom. Victoria would be the type to disparage all the other girls. Mm -hmm. Allison asks, couldn't she be strong and go to the prom? She sounds like Buffy. Yeah, I love that. That's so true. Like, basically, like, if she wants to wear a prom dress and heels, that she's not strong anymore. You don't want to be like all these other girls. I bet they can't kill anything. Victoria's been talking to James Cameron. Victoria says she can if she goes to prom with anyone but Scott and reminds Allison that as long as she stays strong, the Argents won't have to kill a 16-year-old boy. Thanks, Mom. Love you. When Allison shows up to warn him that the police in the school know Jackson's missing, Stiles turns on the police radio and hears them heading his way. He ditches Jackson's phone and drives off. For his part, Scott has gone to the hospital after school to try and talk to Danny again. Danny's distracted by lamenting the loss of his fake ID. He should just show them his apps. Yeah, pull up his shirt and say, here's my ID. They're like, oh, yes, right this way, sir. I mean, that's not the torso of an actual high schooler. Yeah, you're not wrong. I've been to high school. That's... That's not what it was like for me. Yeah, they were not just running around looking like that, man. Scott asks whether Danny had done anything to make Jackson angry on a scale of one, being mildly irritated, to ten, wanting to murder him violently. Danny says that Jackson's kind of always at a four, but they're good. In fact, he was doing Jackson a favor by recovering a video for him, though he realizes that was in the trunk of his car, which is probably still at the club. At first, he won't say anything about what was on it because he's not supposed to. Danny's a good friend. Yeah, he is. But Danny does soften up when Scott promises to get his fake ID back. Armed with new knowledge, Scott leaves Danny's hospital room only to be faced by Melissa, who's grudgingly ready to play tough mom. Mama McCall! Love seeing her, even if I really want them to stop with all the zooming in. (laughs) I know, right? I mean, I love that Danny was dedicated, but he did have... A price 
And I feel like that's fair because Jackson would too. He, he Jackson would Daddy. too. Absolutely. Yeah. Melissa explains that she got a call from the principal, who we know is Gerard Argent, to let her know that Scott is currently failing two classes. If he fails even one midterm, he'll get held back and still be a sophomore next year while his friends are all juniors. Scott promises her that he understands he can't fail a single test. She lets him go and he bikes to the jungle and checks the trunk of Danny's blue Yaris. Also drive a Yaris. And it's even blue like that. Scott heads to the preserve next. This is such a great effect shot of the cliffs at the edge of the preserve. Yeah, I like it. Since Jackson doesn't know what's on the tablet yet, Allison thinks that someone else must be responsible for stealing it. Someone else must know what he is, and maybe they're trying to protect him like the friend the Canima seeks, according to the bestiary. Scott adds to their Canima theory by suggesting that the Canima really does kill murderers. Styles protests that it tried to kill him and Derek, and Styles at least hasn't killed anyone. But Scott thinks that the Canima wasn't waiting for Styles to get out of the pool so much as trying to keep him in. Styles feels violated, though he isn't sure why. It's because the Canima shipped it and it wanted to give you two some time to figure things out. Styles wants that to happen on his own. He doesn't want to feel forced into it. Yeah. I actually do wonder, like, from a non-shipping perspective, what that line is supposed to mean where he says, why do I feel so violated all of a sudden? What yeah. does that mean? Because, like, I, you know, as a shipper, I was like, ah, because we have all those jokes about, like, yeah, the Canada wanted him and Derek to get together. And so... You know, that's why he's like, oh, like, get out of my private life, Kanima. But what does it actually mean, like, canonically? I know, because he acts like that's worse than just, like, if it was going to murder them. Right. I guess, like, that it was trying to control them. But I don't feel like that would make me feel more violated than if someone was going to murder me. Yeah. I don't get it. What do you think, Will? I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. Styles once again, suggests they kill Jackson. Scott reminds him that Jackson put his life on the line to help them with Peter. Did he, though? I know, right? Yeah. He's kind of just there. <laughs> I mean... You, Tag along? Yeah, he was there, like, with Styles, mm-hmm. And the thing that they used was Lydia's idea. And it was also a distance weapon, so they didn't have to be, like, you know, all up in the Alpha's face. Yeah, Jackson's yeah, like, hey, I- hey, I did my part by standing on the opposite side of the room. As all that was happening. I mean, he basically did play that card to Derek and be like, you owe me now. And as I discussed when we talked about that episode, I feel like that was probably a factor because Derek strikes me as someone who would really not ever want to be in someone's debt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a very charitable interpretation, Scott. Styles points out that based on what they've since learned, it seems likely that Jackson leveraged what happened with Peter to get Derek to give him the bite. Scott says that doesn't mean that he isn't still worth saving. Doesn't it? Uh, uh, I think Styles is right here. He's basically like, Jackson did something that was helpful to us, but he did it because it was helpful to himself. Right. Right. Scott identifies with Jackson. That's the real problem here because mm. Jackson doesn't know what he's doing when he's the Canima, much like Scott didn't know what he was doing when he was under the influence of the full moon. Yeah, but Jackson sucks and that's the difference. Jackson's the worst, Scott. I feel like you're ignoring that piece of evidence here. Yes, you're ignoring your whole previous high school career with this person and right. probably middle school and everything. So yeah, come on. Scott reminds Allison of the time he almost killed her and Jackson. Did she know that? I feel like she <laughs> should have been like, wait, what? We should talk about this. When did this happen? 
I know. Like best case scenario, this was another off-screen conversation that was super important that we just didn't see. Scott had someone to stop him from going through with killing. Yeah. Who was that again, Scott? Who who was that? He, he can't remember at this time. Yeah. <laughs> he just he just knows he didn't do the killing because they're still alive. So Style says that the fact that Jackson doesn't have anyone to stop him is his own fault. I don't know. Scott tried pretty hard to drive Derek away. He's lucky that Derek showed up to stop him from killing people despite that. And despite Scott and Styles leaving him for dead. And despite Scott then telling everyone he was a serial killer. Right? I feel like, you know, Derek just felt like deep down, he saw something like redeemable about Scott, even with how Scott was treating him, whereas he doesn't see that with Jackson. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't see that like you're a dumb kid with a good heart. He's like, you're a dumb kid. End of sentence. <laughs> End of sentence. Exactly. Full, Full stop. stop. <laughs> but from the back of the police vehicle, Jackson overhears this conversation and cries. A single tear rolling down that chiseled cheekbone. It is sad because it, it this moment does remind me of that moment from the first season when Jackson goes to the Hell House and Derek's going to kill him and Jackson's realizing this and Derek's like, no one's coming for you. Like, you're such a piece of shit that no <laughs> one is going to save you. And like, this is that moment again where Jackson is hearing new people say, wow, what a piece of shit he is. And he's just like, he knows that he's a piece of shit. But it's just like, he just cannot break past that. He can transform into a canima, but he cannot transform into a better person. I found that scene emotional for different reasons. I felt it was sad because of Derek projecting. That's that is that makes it sadder. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because I think I think too, if you look at the way other characters talk about and to Derek, they kind of end up saying similar things to him. Mm-hmm at different times. But the difference is that Derek, though he also makes a lot of mistakes and acts like a dick, he actually does a lot of things for selfless reasons. Mm -hmm. And people still talk to him like that. And then Jackson acts selfishly the whole time. And then people are like, you're selfish. But it just, yeah, it, it hits different, I feel like, when it's Derek because people are always like, you're selfish and you suck, even when he is actually trying to help. When Styles leaves to check on Lydia who still hasn't forgiven him for ditching her when she was crying in her car, Scott and Allison guard Jackson from the comfort of Allison's car. Scott asks Allison how Chris and Gerard knew where to find him last night when he and Derek were tracking the Canima, and Allison says it's because they have guys who monitor everything around town, like traffic cameras and CCTVs. She guesses that Scott had suspected her of telling them. I mean, I would check my bag and everything. If I felt like they were that dedicated to like tracking and knowing everything going on in town, they seem like that they'd put something in there to track her or record her or put a tracking device on her car. They would, sneaky bastards. Absolutely, they would. They certainly don't trust Allison, so I don't know why she like thinks she has all this free reign where they're not like keeping eyes on her constantly. Yeah. And we just had Victoria make a comment about basically like, looking at her phone records earlier in this very episode. Right. 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 Scott apologizes, saying he just hoped things would normalize eventually, at least enough for him to study and pass his classes. I mean, you could be studying right now in Allison's car, but you're not. That's very true. Time management, Scott. Learn it. (laughs) Allison asks Scott to use Entune to play music on Pandora. And then Pandora starts with an ad for Reese's Cups. It's quite seamless. (laughs) Very... Very seamless product placement. Scott points out that they only have to get through the next two years of high school and then they can be together openly. 
Well, maybe three, depending on those grades. Oh, yeah, you're not wrong. He also brings up the possibility of him becoming normal again, citing Lydia's apparent immunity. Do you think I should have sex with Lydia since I think that's how immunity works? That lesson on vaccines really didn't sink in for these kids, did it? They just are all like trying to sleep with Lydia because they're like, that's how we get immunity. <laughs> yep, we definitely uh, we definitely understood the immunity conversation. He posits that immunity means a cure is also possible. I mean, not necessarily. Like there are plenty of diseases that you can get a vaccine for to gain immunity, but that once you have it, there's nothing they can do. Right. I feel like that's pretty basic. And even like high school science should have covered that much. It probably did. But... I was going to say, like we saw that episode where they were watching a video about like, here's how vaccines work and how you get herd immunity and stuff like that. And clearly it just went in one ear and out the other for these. Yeah, but that was actually Jackson too, who I believe probably has very good grades. He saw that and was like, I had sex with Lydia, now I'm immune. That's how science works. <laughs> so in the car, Scott and Allison then start fooling around. Not the time, guys. Not the time. Uh, could you just not be horny teenagers for once? Unbeknownst to them, Jackson starts to shift under the moonlight. It's kind of weird how it transitions between the sex scene and Jackson shifting. It's a bizarre choice. It is. Is this supposed to be Allison and Scott's first time? It seems like they're playing it like it is, but I mean... I kind of assumed they'd been banging this whole time. Yeah, because she was just talking about like waking up alone. So he's been spending the night, right? Well, not spending the night. That's the point of her comment. But yeah, it's played like it's a V-card getting punched right here. Yeah, it does. Maybe they just did hand stuff before. (laughs) (laughs) Some light dry humping. (laughs) Some claw stuff. Claw stuff. That sounds painful. It does. Doesn't that sound good? I regret She's an argent. That's true. They have intense sex. (laughs) So Styles shows up again, telling the other two that there's something they need to see. Poor Styles. Like, he can't leave alone for like five (laughs) minutes without them, like getting each other's pants. Yeah. Someone's got to be responsible here. Exactly. Scott and Allison burst out of the car and Styles shows them that Jackson is gone. Not a hair out of place for either of those two after banging. In a car. They woke up flawless. Allison and Styles both think they need to tell their dads before Jackson kills someone. Scott laments that this is his fault. Yes, that's true. Yes, it is. Like, you had the one job, Scott. <laughs> I know he's really focused on Allison, but how did he not hear Jackson leaving? Yeah. Yeah, one job, two people to do it, and they knew that nighttime is when it happened. Yet mm-hmm. still. Styles isn't sure how he'll be able to convince his dad of all this, but Scott, eyes glowing yellow, says that the sheriff will believe him. Allison goes home and finds Lydia waiting in her room. There doesn't seem to be a lot of urgency for Allison anymore. She's just like going in, dropping off her bag. I know. Yeah, but more importantly, why was Lydia just waiting in the dark? She's been taking lurking lessons from Derek. (laughs) I pretty much think that this scene where Allison walks in and Lydia's already in her room sitting down watching her come in is pretty much exactly the scene where Scott comes into his bedroom and Derek is sitting in there in the dark watching yeah. Scott come in. It's pretty much like mm-hmm. the same type of scene. So yeah, yeah, she, yeah. She, she's been out here taking notes. Allison is impatient with Lydia, saying she doesn't have time to hang out or to listen to Lydia talk. And Lydia can't have everything she wants right now. Allison's being such a bitch. 
to Lydia. Like Lydia is going through so much. It's not like she's like, oh my God, let's go shopping. Or, oh my God, listen to me talk about this with about Jackson. Like she's clearly going through so much. And she yeah. didn't even ask anything of Allison outside of like, I mean, once Allison got there, Allison just kind of jumped down her throat. Yeah. She really did. She really didn't have time to even say anything. Also, I feel like Allison is acting like Lydia knows how much else is going on and is therefore being petty or something by wanting to talk to her. But yeah. she doesn't know what's going on because you won't tell her. So yeah. how do you expect her to know like, okay, Lydia, the fact that you want to talk right now, it just doesn't make sense. It has to wait because as we both know, there's all this other life or death stuff going on. Well, no, we don't both know that. She's asked for that information repeatedly and you won't give it to her. So it's your own damn fault. And she was just getting busy with Scott in a car. Sure, they're young and love, blah, blah, blah. But they have like the most f***ed up priorities and they always want to take it out on other people, I feel like, when they make poor choices. Yeah. Yeah. Laid to each other. Like they don't want to like admit to each other that they're kind of bad for each other and that like they get distracted. They make each other selfish. Yes, they make each other selfish. Not weak, selfish. And they just want to like, they take it out by jumping out down everyone else's throats. Like the stress of this like relationship of them like getting caught and like yeah letting things go like the canima and it's just it makes me very angry yeah like they're cute and all but guys mm. guys yeah. they're not being great if you like, to their friends. if you had time for a quickie you have time to listen to lydia tell you something important mm-hmm. which by the way a lot of the stuff that happens in this season would have gone a lot more smoothly if they had talked to her. So then they would have had more time for other shit, like yeah. banging in Allison's car. So they only have themselves to blame in that department. Yes, they do. Now, when Allison goes on to complain that she needs someone to translate five pages of archaic Latin, and so Lydia's needs are way down here, priority-wise, Lydia mentions that, guess what? She knows archaic Latin because she got bored with classical Latin. Allison really needs to apologize to Lydia. 100%. And she's like, well, just how smart are you? But, like, I I feel like she should be, like, offering, like, softening up and offering an apology. Yeah. Yeah, because she basically, Lydia's like, I desperately need someone to talk to and you're my best friend. And Allison's like, well, we all have needs that we can't get met. Like, I need someone to translate this archaic Latin. And Lydia's like, well, I'll do it for you. I feel like she, Allison was acting like Lydia was coming in like a spoiled brat. And we're not getting that at all. Nope. Like, she's not like fucking Willy Wonka and up out here. <laughs> like, I wouldn't know. She Don't care how. Yeah, don't hear. I mean, when we had the scene with the car, she ended up like leaving without getting the answer she wanted. Right. And she didn't win that conversation with no. Allison. Right. And it doesn't seem like she's done anything since then to be demanding of Allison in any way. So I don't know why Allison's all like, Ugh. you can't just always get what you want, Lydia. Again, I think she's projecting. Yeah. Like yeah. what so many people in the show do. She's like, yeah, you can't always get the thing that you want right now. Sometimes there's a lot of other things going on that need your attention and have to take priority. It's like, really? You think so, Allison? You mean like when you want to get laid right now, but you should be watching the were lizard in the back of a truck that's going to go kill people (laughs) like that? 
Y'all need to be like the Canima and take a look in the mirror. (laughs) (laughs) Scott and Styles show up at the sheriff's station, ready to tell the sheriff about the Canima situation. I actually, until we rewatched this episode, forgot that Styles was getting ready to tell the sheriff about at least some supernatural stuff so early on. Me too. I still think he should have told him season one, but... Sure. Whatever. Absolutely. Because he he does go on about how like he's worried about his dad being put in dangerous situations. And it's like, well, you know, it would make it a little bit less dangerous if he had all the information that you've got. I know, because like I understand I I feel like where Styles ultimately is coming from is he feels like having that information would put him in danger, which makes sense for someone like Styles who Mm -hmm. wouldn't really be in super dangerous situations if he didn't seek them out because of, you know, knowing about things that are going on. But it doesn't really make sense for the sheriff because guess what? He's the sheriff. He's in dangerous situations no matter what. If there's someone going around killing people, he's going to be there because he's the law. Right. You know, so it's not really a thing where like, oh, if he just doesn't know what's going on, then he won't be in danger. It doesn't really work that way when your job is inherently dangerous. Right. Turns out they're just in time for the sheriff to introduce them to Mr. David Whitmore, Esquire, Jackson's father. Jackson chimes in to say that Esquire means lawyer. He's such a smug bastard. Actually, in I was looking at the script, the shooting script, and it actually says that Jackson gives them a sinister smile. Whoa. <laughs> I would have gone with smug as well, Calissa. Styles and Scott are dumbstruck. They do not know how to handle the situation that they have walked into. Personally, I feel like they should have gone with the whole, we're starting a frat and we're working on our hazing. Actually pretty tame as hazing goes. Lydia informs Allison that Morel mistranslated the passage. The Kanama doesn't seek a friend, but a master. Allison realizes this means that someone isn't protecting Jackson, but controlling him. This revelation ends the episode. All right, Allison, you need to make some time for your best friend. She just did you like a complete solid. Do they have any idea how much faster they would have solved this stuff if they just looped Lydia into it in the beginning? Yeah, Lydia and Style should just be in control of everything. They should be co-alphas of this pack. <laughs> they could get all the shit done and everyone should just listen to them all the time. I can yeah, hear. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Wolfies, that wraps up the beta section for Frenemy. And now we're about to dive into spoilers, not just for this episode, but for the whole Teen Wolf series. If you want to stay spoiler-free for all the excellent stories to come, jump out now and we'll catch you next week. But if this isn't your first time in Beacon Hills and you want to hear more, don't move a muscle. Here comes the alpha. I got an idea. Does it involve breaking the law? Why now don't you think that's a given? I was just trying to be optimistic. Don't bother. All right, Wolfies. Now we're going to jump over to our interview with Eric Porn, the key makeup effects artist on Teen Wolf. Let's have a listen. I'm glad to be back in Beacon Hills. Yes, yes, we all are. That's we that are is, too. <laughs> that has been the consensus with everyone we've talked to. So, Eric, how did you get into the makeup effects industry? Well, I was a weird kid, so you know, <laughs> you know it was. Uh, I honestly, I, I have to say, speaking of werewolves, that's one of the things that got me into it. Was probably seeing Michael Jackson's Thriller at an early age, where they turned Michael Jackson into a werewolf and. Thriller, they did this whole behind-the-scenes making of, which is how they financed the video, I found out. So seeing that, seeing Thriller, you know, it terrified me as a kid. But then, you know, you would watch the behind-the-scenes and you would see how they did all this stuff. And it was it's actually really fun to uh, to know that there were people that were actually making a living doing that. So I think I, think I kind of set out from there. I was maybe like five years old. Nice. 
something wow. like that. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun. That was John Landis, right? Yeah, John Landis yeah. directed it. He directed the video, and then he directed American Werewolf in London, which I, I think I had also seen. So werewolves were like a huge part of my, my growing up. Teen Wolf, the original Teen Wolf, I saw in the theater when I was seven years old with one of my friends. Oh, wow. Oh, that's so yeah. cool. Well, werewolves are the undisputed best movie monster. So there you they're go. They're pretty awesome. Yeah. They are pretty awesome. Were there any other creatures that inspired you besides the Michael Jackson werewolf? Jaws. Like on your shirt, Jaws. Yeah, the, the original Jaws. Um, watching, I mean, it's funny because you watch it now and they, they've come so far with doing CGI and stuff. But I, I almost think the original Jaws looks better because it's a big, goofy looking. It wasn't even rubber. It was like this horrible urethane skinned uh, puppet that they built that, you know, the ocean destroyed on a daily basis. But I actually thought kind of the imperfections in it made it look cooler. The fact that it looked fake was even scarier. Yeah. I feel like horror also is a is a very um, it's very pure in the fact that there's every kind of emotional aspect put into it. You have screaming, crying. There, there's also some drama in there sometimes because you know people act out how they would if they're going to get murdered by something or whatever. But it, it kind of I, I find a lot of romance in horror. Like you know you look at Bram Stoker's Dracula, it's very romantic. Um, but at the same time, it's really messed up. So I, I just find horror kind of encompasses everything. Yeah, if we weren't doing a Teen Wolf podcast, we'd be doing a horror podcast because it's our favorite. I mean, it's so kind of one and the same. I mean, Teen Wolf, uh, it, from what Teen Wolf was to what it became, what Jeff Davis turned it into, was it became a horror kind of a romantic horror show. How did you find yourself in Beacon Hills creating monsters for Teen Wolf? Well, I was working for another company back then, and I had just got into the union. Literally, I got into the union, I think it was January 10th of 2012. And then on January 12th, I was in Atlanta on set for Teen Wolf. It was like, it was coming up, and it was like, we're going to do Teen Wolf, we got to work on Teen Wolf, and you're going to go out, and you're going to you're gonna be the third, and then Chris Gallagher is going to be the key. So, went out to Atlanta. I was supposed to be there for two weeks, ended up being there for six months. Um, wow. Yeah, that that's how it went, and it, it was it was a crazy time. That that's pretty much all there really was to it. It was it was started kind of working on designs, helping out with building Canama suit and all that stuff, and then all of a sudden it was like I was in Atlanta having to to do the Canama makeup. So that was that was kind of the thing. It was it was just that quick and that that straightforward. And then awesome. uh, you know I'd known Chris from a long time ago we we'd met like at many different things we never we only got to work together maybe once or twice and then um but he was actually from my hometown and we never really met back there so it was funny that you know, we got to work together on this thing and spend a lot of time in atlanta which was which was a blast yeah that, that was the start of it and, and that was the start of five really amazing years of work with with an incredible crew and the incredible actors who were a lot of fun if they weren't fun they got killed off on the show do you like working with a director or showrunner who is able to bring you this artwork to describe what it is they have in their head? Or do you like the process of reading the script and just kind of getting a, an idea of what this maker, what this makeup or this monster would be, and then kind of going through the design process? It's a great question. It's good in both ways. Mm -hmm. um, I like it when you can be creative, but it's also really nice when someone says, this is what I want to see. And it takes a lot of the guesswork out because sometimes the process of, of going through the design work and the guesswork, especially if you have someone that doesn't really know what they want, can be kind of painful. Like you just keep designing, designing, and then it's like rejection or rejection. But when 
you come through and you, you just have this idea in your head, like this is what he wants to see. We just go exactly with what he wants to make. But the nice thing about Jeff was he would give us the idea of what he wanted us to make. But if we want to add something to it, if we wanted to say, well, you know, it might be cool if we did this. He was open to all that stuff. He was very collaborative like that. We never had to worry about um, him going, no, don't do that. Don't don't do that. It was always like, can we can we add a little something? Can we bring a little something to this thing that you designed? So we, we would get to create like that. But he um, he would usually have the idea in his head on a television schedule and on a television budget. That was um, that was a game changer. That was good. I mean, on a film, it, it's nice to be able to get the script and say, this is what I would like to see. But also, if the director's got his idea made up, then it takes out a lot of the guesswork. So I just worked on a film like two years ago because of COVID now, where the director was, um, one of the directors was a storyboard artist. So when they came to me, they were just like, do this, do this, do this. And they would also do the Photoshop thing, show them the sculpture, and they would be like, you know, draw around this and be like, change this little spot. We, it just made life easier. Very cool. So we've already talked a little bit about what you like about the horror genre, but how did working on Teen Wolf compare to working on other horror productions like Devil, The Burrowers, Candy Corn, Fear the Walking Dead. As far as the horror goes, I would say working on Teen Wolf was like working on any horror show or any horror film. Uh, there was stuff that we shot, even in season two, I remember they tied up one of these wolves, these, uh, what was he? Was he an Omega wolf? Or the Omega, the yeah. Yeah. And they tied him up by his hands and then they used a, a samurai sword and they cut him in half and his intestines spilled out. I'm like, can we show this? Yeah. <laughs> It's like, can we actually get away with show? So, I mean, it, it's exactly the same thing, except Teen Wolf had a lot more kind of drama to it. But I, I always saw Teen Wolf as being a really long horror film. Yeah, it's like a 12-hour horror film. It's awesome. Pretty yeah. much, yeah. I feel like that really separates it from a lot of other, like, teen kind of fantasy supernatural shows that really embrace the horror, and that's what made it so cool. Yeah, definitely. So too, yeah. Which actor had the most trouble sitting still for makeup and who was the best at it? There were a lot of them that were the best at. There were a lot that were really good. Posey obviously was, was really great with the makeup. Uh, I did his makeup for from season three through the rest of the show. So he was my guy. I ended up doing Posey's uh, werewolf makeup. He was great. And Tyler Hecklin was great. They, they all were great. Honestly, um, the, the only one I could say was was a little tricky was Daniel Sharman. Oh. No fault of his own, but he just, he would get really distracted by his phone. So he would have his face like pointed down <laughs> like that. And I would see in the top of his head and I would be like, Daniel, I can't, I can't glue this onto you. Gravity is like making it fall off your face. He's like, oh yeah, sorry. I'm like, just hold your head up. Finally, I think I grabbed the top of his head and I was like, dude, just please, please <laughs> just look straight ahead. I'm like, can you put your phone up there or hold it up in the air? Or yeah. I, I don't think he really enjoyed the, the process as much, but, you know, he was great to work with. Everybody on that show was great. Megan Tandy was great. You know, it's like she would come in and I would have to do the scars on the side of her. And, and you know, she has such like porcelain skin. It was it was tough sometimes because if there was an edge or anything, you would see it on camera. Yeah, those scars, and they, they were flat. They laid flat. So it was like trying to put it on the like this nape of her neck here where it would go all the way down and just trying to like fold them into the place and get them in the right position every single time well, they look great they definitely did on yeah. screen yeah what makeup took the longest to apply the first one was the canima because we had that at, in it like five hours plus but we got that down to two hours and 30 two hours and 45 minutes eventually we you know you figure out 
ways to, to minimize the time in the trailer. You figure out things to prep and that. Then I would have to say probably the Hellhound. It was uh, three of us that took almost three hours to apply all of those little um, little cuts and things mm-hmm. all over Ryan's body. And people don't know this, and Ryan, sorry for uh, giving away your secret, his, uh, his deltoids, his shoulder muscles were silicone. So we oh, had to glue on these silicone deltoids because they were they were so cracked into them. There was no way we could just glue pieces on them. They would look like they were little like troughs or something on top of his skin. So we we bulked up his shoulders a little bit. I mean, he does have you know like crazy muscles and all that. You know, we accentuated a little bit. That is so cool. Hellhound is definitely like one of the coolest makeups I've ever seen on any show. It's really like innovative, really cool. And it's old technology. We we took stuff that was being used in the eighties you know, wildfire paints and we painted it. You can't paint them directly on the skin, but we could paint them into the prosthetics. And then they would just stand off camera with a black light on him and these, you know, doing this in front of the black light to give it this lava flow look and it just worked. It was fun. And everyone thought it was CG. I totally did until just I just now. I was today years old when I found out how that was done. That's really cool. <laughs> I did yeah. already know that, but yeah, it was just really like yeah, like I said, very innovative. And so much cooler than just using CGI. It is right. so much cooler that it's way. Always cooler when you can do something in camera. It's just, it's. I mean, all the the artists and and technicians who create the CGI, like they're all fantastic. But it's like when you can like fool someone through the lens. You know, it's like because I remember when we were talking about the Hellhound that it's like he's looks. I remember like original talks where like he looks like the Balrog. How when the Balrog moved and flexed it the skin cracked and broke open and then there's fire beneath and all that. And it's like, well, how do you do that? That's not a million dollars per shot or something, you know? And then y'all were like, oh, well, they did this. This technology exists. We don't have to spend a ton of money on this. We can make this work. And it looks so good because you're right. I mean, you tell people and just be like, show someone an image. You'd be like, point to the CGI, please. They're just going to point to all this stuff. That's like, nope, that's that's <laughs> all actually there. And it's it looks so good. What was the the process like of, finding the look of a character like going from like either Jeff's original sketch or like what you're reading in the script to what you finally see in the episode it it was different for every character to be honest Jeff would usually I mean we would get the script and then Jeff would give us his ideas and what he thought was was the way it looked and then we would bring in the actors into the shop and then do the the head casts and whatnot on them or the you know in ryan's case we actually molded his whole upper torso then we went in and we drew out on his cast like where all the cracks were going to be and we sculpted all the pieces and i think we actually for him we patterned out a lot of the pieces and sculpted them flat except for his shoulders we re-sculpted his shoulders we were going to sculpt a whole chest piece but it was like with the action he was doing he would have just tore it up throughout the day and we'd be sitting there all day just trying to touch it up every take. So we had to take into consideration the daily wear of it, which was another thing too. Um, certain things, they just like anything that goes in between the pec muscle and the, the armpit, you know, by the middle of the day, it's just going to look like a ragged uh, sweater, you know, it's just going to be trashed. So it's like, you have to keep in mind, like where the pieces go, how they fit. It's going to be hot in the set. They're going to be, they're going to be sweating parts off. So it was, it was like a game of trying to figure that out with things like that. But like the regular wolves, they would come in, I would do a design um, in Photoshop and ZBrush and then give it to Jeff. And he would say, okay, let's do that. They would come in. We'd usually cast just their face. And that was pretty straightforward. Then we would have our guys start sculpting the pieces, molding them, and, and running all the silicone. And then Chris would do the teeth, of course. And we also had a really great guy named Dalton Kutch, who was our lab guy and was like our lab guru and basically built everything in the lab for us. How did the makeup effects for the show evolve over 
those years that you were on the show? Like, can you, can you tell like a pronounced difference between like when you started versus where the show ended? When we first started working on it, I remember we began in season two and had, you know, this was for another company anyway, but we had also got the casts of Posey and everybody from the first season and they, they had started, I mean, Tyler was what, 18 when the show started? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And they change. Everybody changes a little bit. So Tyler's makeup had to be resculpted a few times just to kind of allow for the, the change because your face changes a little bit as the years go by. It's just like we would have to remold his teeth every two years. Just we got fresh molds now. Let's make new teeth. Um, your teeth shift. So there was kind of that change, but also um, I, I feel like we streamlined a lot of things. We were able to get past a lot of things. I know Jeff didn't like this little um, widow's peak that Tyler had. So we got to a certain point. He's like, he's an alpha now. Lose the widow's peak. We're like, great. It never wanted to stay. But the, the hair pieces, we started doing different things with the hair pieces. Uh, the first couple seasons, you would glue the hair pieces on with standard uh, lace glue. And then we found this other method, which was like the super baldies plastic. And you would glue it on and you would put the hair pieces in, run a little alcohol over it, and it would literally dissolve into the lace. So you couldn't see the lace on the skin. Oh, very cool. So, wow which I think saved them a lot of touch-ups and digital after because you wouldn't have to do that. We figured out a different way to, to put the nails on like season two and into three, there was like a little dab of super glue on each of their nails and you would take a hard acrylic nail, put it on there. We got it to the point where I like season middle of season three, they were like squishy nails and you would just put uh, this tape on them, this uh, wig tape and you would put it on them and just stick them on their fingers. So the actors would literally pop their nails off after the tape. That's awesome. Wow. After, um, yeah, this, there was there was streamlining, a lot of streamlining. I know Chris created a Teen Wolf palette. Do you know how that came to be? And is that like standard for a lot of shows to create a palette? It can be on the show, like from season three on through the end of it was um, Chris Gallagher, myself, Kenny Myers and Kato Stefan. Uh, Kenny actually owns a company that uh, creates palettes for different things. He actually created this palette system called Skin Illustrator. You know, it was one of these things we, we had talked to him and said, what would it take to make a custom palette? And he's like, oh, well, just say the words. And then he had made a previous custom palette for the show. And then, you know, when, when Chris and I kind of um, got into, you know, department heading the show after like, you know, middle of season three, he took Chris's custom colors and put them in there. So it's something that I believe any show can do, but I think there's a minimum amount of palettes you have to, you have to order. And with the amount of artists that we had coming through, it was, it just made sense that they would have all the palettes with the colors. So Kenny really hooked that up. He made that work. Uh, I don't know what it costs to do any of that. I just know that he would take the colors and he would work with them. He and Chris would work together. It, it was really cool though. It was, it still sells. I think you can still buy it at that's awesome that's really cool yeah Yeah. so i know you mentioned that yeah the show had to walk a line between scary and sexy and you had to make sure like to show um enough of like ryan's face how did that play into like designing the makeup especially for like werewolf transformations we found that we had to leave a lot more of their faces exposed into it it wasn't like the traditional kind of werewolf stuff where you're always kind of trying to go gory or scary they they really wanted it to be kind of like the lost boys in 1987 where they had just accentuated these these very attractive men you know accentuated like these parts of them to kind of give them this like mystique about them that's really what it ended up being is just keep them looking sexy you know keep the mystique of them but 
still make them a little monstrous. So it, it kind of simplified the pieces that we had to make. We couldn't go very heavy on any of the pieces. It would show too much. Um, so, I, I mean, a lot of the characters on the show had very, very thin prosthetics like this. And just a little bit would take in enough. I mean, Tyler's piece literally went from like here around his eyes, down onto his nose. And then there was like a piece here. And then that was that was all he had. And then the ears. But yeah, yeah, they wanted to show off. As, I mean, they had a very attractive cast. So they wanted to make sure that they showed them off. Yes, this is very true. Yes. Sexy wolf. That's what this <laughs> well, to be, yeah. Mission accomplished. Yes. Mission yes. Accomplished, right? Teen Wolf told stories about creatures from all around the world. Would you usually do research on a mythological creature once it was added to the story? Or would you use only internally created images like Jeff's sketches for reference? That is a fantastic question. We we would actually go and do the research on these uh, creatures. Half of these creatures, when he would bring them to us, you know, like the stuff that you, you guys wrote, Will, mm-hmm. we would get it and we would be like, I have no idea what this is. I've never heard of this. And then we would have to go look it up. And then it's like, oh, okay, so how do we do a, what was the one, a slua, I think? But some of these things were very abstract ideas. So we, they were open to interpretation uh, with the fact that they were mostly like, I think like a Nugitsune, like there was nothing, there was no physical description. So it was basically like whatever Jeff wanted it to be, whatever you guys came up with in the writer's room, we just kind of stuck with that. Right. But I mean, we tried to research them as much as we could. I know you've done demos at conventions. What is it like to work with an audience as opposed to behind the scenes and what kind of like fan interactions did you get? It was cool at, at BiteCon when we did it. Um, there, there were really, it was just, you would hear people just kind of like going off about like, oh, that's fun, that's neat, you know, and, and they were all really into it. When we did, we did it at one of the makeup conventions like IMATS or Monster Palooza, we did it on, I can't even remember, they gave us a model to do it. And you would sit there and do it and you would hear people behind you like as you're working going, why are they using those colors? That doesn't look good. Or so. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, geez, <laughs> like this is what tough we used on crowd. the show. Tough crowd. Yeah, um, tough crowd. Yeah, the crowds are much tougher. At BiteCon, though, it was mostly like people were excited. People were waiting in line to get their pictures with the, the makeup demos. I think we had we had uh, Tyler and we also had Holly, the two stand-ins from the show. Right. They had actually got to wear some of the stuff before. But no, it, it was a lot of fun. I mean, you usually you tune out people when you're working on it. You just kind of focus and, and you don't really notice they're there. Uh, on the behind the scenes, I mean, we're in a trailer and we're pumping music or listening to Ryan Kelly's really inappropriate dirty jokes or... <laughs> You know, I mean, we, we could just zone out. Um, so you, you just kind of focus on it. You don't really pay much attention. Did any of the act- actors ever try to have input on their makeup or like super uncomfortable outside of like you said, the stunt people got really hot. They can't have the costumes. I think after a while, one of the things I know, Hecklin wasn't doing well with the, with the contact lenses. His eyes weren't, weren't reacting very well to the lenses. So we ended up not doing contact lenses and then of course everybody else didn't really want to wear the lenses either because it's, it's an uncomfortable thing i mean i feel like the lenses really add something to it but with the way that they kind of wrote it in the show after that they were like their when their eyes would kind of flare up when they would have kind of a wolf moment so it wasn't really like we needed it and uh the visual effects people were going through and doing it at that point that was it was kind of the only thing um i know tyler Posey wasn't crazy about the the fingernails after a while, just because I think it was just it was hard for him to, to do much. You know, when you got that added like inch of, of weird claw on your hand, it, it you know it takes out some of the tactile aspects of your fingers. So that was pretty much the only thing that I ever heard of about any discomfort really, and maybe sometimes the teeth too. That after a while the teeth could kind of grind on your gums a little bit. 
Mm. There were times we would have them pull their teeth out and just take a break, and you'd have to give them, you know, have the set medic come over and bring a Motrin over so it would take the, the anti-inflammatory, would it, you know, take down the swelling mm. or whatever. Besides that, though, it, it was really great. It, I mean, we would work with the actors. They would say, hey, can we maybe cut this out a little bit here? Can we do this? So, you know, this kind of goes into my eye socket a little much here. I mean, it, you know, it was stuff like that. It, was, it, it wasn't anything... There's never anything bad. I don't think anybody had like a really bad reaction to any of their makeups. I know Ian Bowen, when he came in to get his head cast, was nervously pacing outside. And we're like, what's going on? And I found out Tyler Hecklin had messed with him so much. <laughs> oh, like, oh, no. Your head cast is terrible. You're going to freak out. You're going to be under there. You're going to... You're gonna be locked in and closet like just just because those two were like brothers, so they would just constantly like get each other worked up over stuff. And so, you know, I think we we gave Ian his cast and we got him out of it. Like, how was it? He's like, that wasn't that bad. And we're like, well, yeah, because Tyler Tyler was playing with you. <laughs> I know Will mentioned that uh, before the Dread Doctors, you guys had uh, planned on doing Plague Doctors. What did those look like? Um, we didn't get very far on the, on those designs, I think, because it was, I can't, Will might know this better. I think it was a, it was a script thing, wasn't it? They didn't want to, they didn't want to make them play doctors for some reason. It was the, the show Eye Candy was going to have a character that wore a plague doctor mask. And after like, we had just started talking plague doctors and then we learned about that. And so we switched over to dread doctors. For the better, I think. What y'all created for them, it's like, I mean, I, I remember being bummed because of the initial drawings Jeff had done. It's like, this is really awesome. But then it's like, oh, we can't do that. And then we start getting what y'all have done, your tests, and then like getting it, the helmets on actors. And it's like, oh, well, we just made something better. Like, oh, that's fine. That's fine. We need, you know, we don't get to do something cool. They will do something cool. You know, so <laughs> just about the credit for that. The way it went. I would say it has to go to Dalton Kutch too, because... He, he was like kind of the steampunk guy, and he also loved to tinker with stuff. So he made all those helmets. He and I think Tim Jarvis, there were three guys, and they were all there just building these helmets out of scratch. And they had to do two of them. They had to have a stunt helmet and a regular helmet. But they made them out of scratch, and they cut every piece of leather, and they stitched it, and all of that stuff. It took like a month to build all the helmets, wow. which on a TV show is an immense amount of time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, worth it. I mean, they, again, I, I remember seeing, was it Marty and, and Caitlin and Doug putting on their full costumes the first time and kind of walking around the high school hallway sets with uh, Eric Wallace and some of the other writers and everybody just watching. And it's just like, it looks so good. It just looks so good. So they're, they're iconic Teen Wolf monsters, like characters. Because like up until then, it had been like these transformation monsters and and stuff like that and stuff you kind of knew but then these like steampunk these tall statuesque steampunk characters come in it's like they still feel completely like within the world of teen wolf but so alien at the same time and just y'all just nailed it just nailed it so good yeah i was so excited when i first saw those promotional images because i love steampunk stuff yeah. So just as soon as those ads started going up, I was like, Teen Wolf is doing steampunk. Mm-hmm. Is it my birthday? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dalton got to really flex his uh, his steampunk chops. And I think I think that was a lot of fun for him. He probably went a little overboard with him, to be honest, because no he, such like, thing. <laughs> he would, no would tinker with stuff. And I'm like, dude, that looks that looks amazing. You know, now now you gotta replicate it. And he's like, Oh what? I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. Now you got to make more. I was thinking about the 
servos in the masks and everything and the like clicking noises that they would have with them and just it yeah. it was really cool it all just came together so that each individual part was really cool but the the final version was even greater than the sum of its parts yeah yeah just i got to play the voice of one of the creatures and i'm trying to remember which one it was oh Really? It, it was either one of the Dread Doctors I got to do a voice for, or it was the, the last thing that Marty played. What was the, the name of the last creature at the very end? Oh, the um, Anukate. The Anukate, yes. Yeah. I think it might have been the Anukate. I remember talking to Blaine, and I was like, do you need any voice people to do stuff? And he said, just send me a couple clips of you saying this. And and then they filtered it, and they put it in the show or whatever. But Yeah. That's so cool. That is. That's really cool. I knew you were a dead body. I didn't know you had any voice on the show. Right, I never got yeah. credit for it, but I didn't care. I just, I was, it was cool to me to even do it. So. Were you a dead body on the bus? No, that was Chris. I think Chris ah. was a dead body on the bus. Okay. Well, I know um, Chris's head was, was being carried. The the creature was carrying his head. That's and then awesome. I was, I was in the <laughs> big awesome. stack where the cockroaches were crawling out of us. Right. Yeah. Every one of us were like, let's just, let's just be dead in this. Like, you know, it was a funny <laughs> thing. It was an inside joke because the, the beast of Jevedon was all done CG. Yeah, so we're like, let's kind of do this thing like CG killed our jobs. <laughs> so we're, you know, we're all dead bodies. All of us makeup effects people have been killed by the digital beast of Jevedon. That's very poetical. Very poetic. <laughs> so, no, y'all, uh, y'all can't be replaced. There's, there's, there will always be something so unique and tactile about prosthetic work, you know, and or creating those the masks for the dread doctors or creating the facelessness of the, of the Anukate, or even just, you know, with uh, no Kitsune having just those bandages and then those awful silver teeth coming through and like those bandaged hands There's always, it's just, you can always tell, like it just has this, this real factor that you just can't duplicate with a computer. And, and, and again, not to throw shades on, on all those, uh, computer artists because they do fantastic work but it's just god if you can just like we need his face half his face to be gone it's like all right well prosthetics we can make this work and just put some bone there and, and all this and like teeth poking through it's like John did so amazing good. work on that show too like all the cg guys did such great work on the show yeah and i think he told us like the the beast of jevedon like every shot they did of it was going to take i think like two weeks or something to do each shot and then production's like well you got like three days or something and they, they were they were pulling it off you know yeah now they less time than they yeah. were given so it's like we have no time to do this but it needs to be incredible and i don't think there was ever a time when anyone didn't deliver just perfection and they did it with a smile everybody was happy i don't remember anybody ever having like bad days and just you know being mean or anything i everybody was really cool to work with on the show we had a fan question that we can answer maybe you can was any of the ghost riders played um was any women under the costumes there i thought maybe there might have been because uh, i thought some of the horse riders were actually female may not have been i know one of the dread doctors was was always a woman we we did have some female riders on that show because there was a lot of horse riding that's a good question i, I can't even really answer it because i'm not sure there there probably was to be honest and I, I felt like there was a lot of equality in the show there was a lot of representation in that show and i think that's why the show took off the way it did yeah it definitely seems like from what i've heard that jeff gave a lot of opportunities uh to people and it sounds really credible that he always wanted to make sure like people got to be where they wanted to be on the show every season you kind of moved up to the next spot above you that was how teen wolf worked like when you when you would meet jeff or start working on the show he'd be like oh that's really cool but what do you 
what do you want? Like, where, where is this leading for you? And he'd be like, all right, well, we'll see what we can do about that to see if, see if we can make that work out. Cause you know, I mean, we had cast and crew direct, you know, Katie Eastridge was our script supervisor and, you yeah. know, she directed a fantastic episode, you know? Yeah. And so it's just, you know, he's, he definitely, and that was one of the things where he liked working with these people and he's like, well, let's promote from within well, you know, we don't need to, you know, find someone else to do this job. We've already got people who know the show inside and out. Let's, let's see what they can actually do. And yeah, he was very, very much about giving everyone a shot. If they wanted to try something, he's like, prove, prove you can do it. And then we'll let you do it. I was the third on the show, I think in season two. And then I think the last episode of the show, I was actually department head because Chris had to go off and do some big movie when he's like, he's like, you got this right. It was the last two weeks of the show. And I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll department head or whatever. So it, it was just like everybody kept moving up. Carly, when Carly started, who was in the regular makeup department, she was interning with us, I think on season three. And then mm-hmm. came up to us and said, I got the union the other day. And we're like, really? And then she was department head of the, the last season of the show. So it, yeah. it was just one of those things. Wow. It was, the show was awesome. kind of magical. Everybody just kind of progressed. Yeah. If you could have added any creature to Teen Wolf, what would it have been? We had talked about a couple different things. The problem was there was so many creatures that were done by other shows, which it mm. kind of we kind of had to go with some of the more obscure things. And Jeff never wanted to really go with things that had been done before, but you know, like I mean, I would have loved to have seen like some kind of interdimensional beings or something like that, and, you know, even probably eventually like some kind of alien thing or whatever. You know, creatures from Eldritch another world that maybe. were brought with from Beacon Hills, you know, because it was like the, the one place that would attract all these different creatures. I thought it would have been cool to have like a leprechaun or something crazy like that. <laughs> <laughs> a leprechaun or anything, really. I mean, the, yeah. the best part about the show, you could get away with anything. I also yeah. love seeing another kind of Beast of Jevedon, like kind of werewolfy creature, like a loop guru. We always want to do some fun transformations, but there just was never time, you know, the way that, that the show was. It was so fast paced, all the action. There wasn't time that they would be laying on the floor of like their kitchen just going oh my god it hurts (laughs) (laughs) now i desperately want to see a leprechaun in beacon hills (laughs) is warwick davis available can we get warwick on the loan please that'd be nice he won't do those movies anymore oh yeah he had kids and doesn't want to do horror films i guess so treasure what we have this is kind of a similar question but is there a monster or creature or transformation that you've never created through special effects makeup but you'd really like to not necessarily in beacon hills but potentially we never got to do like a full-on werewolf transformation like like an american werewolf in london type thing we did a little something in season three with posey where we did some some mixes of like digital and makeup effects where we we made some green screen versions of his head and we pulled the the hair from his, you know, his chops back through and you could see that growing and see a few things growing. But we, we always wanted to do something like where one of the creatures, I mean, in any movie, I would love to do this where you have like a creature that someone's turning into a werewolf like that. And you would just do like all kinds of different elements to it. Like they did old school, maybe even use some CG stuff or composite some practical stuff with CG onto the actor and do like a really great kind of a, a werewolf transformation that looks painful and you can see like the muscle and the bone moving under the skin you can see like the skeleton kind of reforming itself um that would have been i've always wanted to do that i haven't had a chance to do it that would be awesome i would i'd love that. love to see that, <laughs> that would be awesome. throw it on i did a little bit of it on this movie called the wretched which came out last year we watched yes, it we watched did you it. watch it mm-hmm. oh yeah we were very impressed with like the makeup on that on the creature it was, there it was fun and then it was just, like, 
going with practical effects, which is just so fun whenever you can see that. There's just, it's like Will said, there's something special about it. I think there was one CG shot in the whole movie on the makeup. So that was, that was about it. No, that was fun. And they, those guys are hopefully doing a sequel soon. Nice. Oh, really? Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Nice. Yeah. Way yuckier than what they did the first time. <laughs> <laughs> Clancy Brown, who is in The Burrowers, and Tony Todd, who is in Candy Corn, are both titans of the horror genre. So did you get yeah. to work with them at all? Or... Yes. Well, and do you have any stories to share with us? Because we are massive horror fans who love both of those actors. Let's see. Tony Todd, I got to be in the scene with him one of the few times I got to act. I was in Candy Corn. I was the guy, one of the guys sitting next to him. You know, just, I'm not an actor, so I'm just sitting there like... We totally missed oh, that. Just, like, sitting, <laughs> yeah, when, he, when sitting he's around to that little circle of people that like, I'm like yeah. next to him. It's like, yeah. What? Really bad. Like, we have terrible. to go rewatch it immediately. Yeah. Can't really miss that. He was great. Clancy was great. We did, uh, we had to do a head cast on him. And, you know, Clancy's just one of those down to earth people. Like, whatever you need, I'll do this. He's, he's just like the nicest guy you could ever imagine. But I didn't get to hang out with Clancy all that much. You know, just got to see him on set a couple of times. But he was, he was great. He was just like, you know, gentleman had done a million life casts. So when we went to cast his head, he just, you know, cast me. So do you guys always create your own prosthetics for a makeup? Were they always like custom made by you guys? There's a couple companies now like RBFX offers pre-made foam pieces that you can pretty much find almost anything you're looking for. But uh, when you have to do a custom one, you make it you make it yourself. Yeah. So we would we would bring in the actors, cast their heads, uh, sculpt the pieces, run the silicone, all that stuff. I mean, also, if, if it's a custom piece, you don't want to try to use a store-bought piece that someone's like, oh, I saw that at Friends Beauty Supply. It's a Wuchi piece. You know, you didn't want to do that. But uh, some of these companies like RBFX and there's a few other ones that are making prosthetics like pre-made prosthetics they make stuff that's really great it's professional quality and we use them in a pinch like you get a you get someone saying well we need this by tomorrow it's like let me call them and see what they got on the shelf and then it's like yeah we've got that so there there's like pregnant bellies like they would have pregnant bellies and like everybody needs those because you always get a call for a pregnant belly for something so we did our own those places weren't quite as predominant when we were doing the show so uh, I guess it, it depends nowadays like I've used some of those pre-made pieces I'd prefer to do our own original ones but if it saves a couple dollars and it, you can cut a couple corners and there's something that's perfect for what you need then and get the pre-made stuff time and money the only things that ever matter on a tv show what kind of collaboration happens between the special effects makeup and other departments like costume beauty makeup to make a character come to life one team wolf it was unique because we had the makeup effects team and the straight makeup team we call it straight makeup which is you know the regular uh corrective uh what we would do is we would do our wolf makeups on on the boys or the girls or whoever it was and then they would go over to get their beauty makeup done at the beauty team it was kind of a fun thing doing it that way because usually if they were like a wolf they like they would stay in our kind of a range but if it was a female wolf they would still go back over to the regular beauty side and get their regular beauty makeup that they would do on them all the time. So it kind of flowed. It didn't, it didn't feel like all of a sudden they turned into a wolf and it was like all their makeup went away. <laughs> so we would, we would have to kind of coordinate with that, but it was always um, like Philly Temple and Carly. Do you have a favorite episode of Teen Wolf or if not an episode, do you have a favorite scene or season? Season four, I really liked, but I, I want to say, season three watching Dylan O'Brien turn into 
the Nogitsune was probably one of the most fun things I had because I did Dylan O'Brien's makeup as the Nogitsune when he when he was Void Styles. Sorry, watching him do the Void stuff was. I remember actually looking at him and he was doing he was getting really dramatic and I, I thought to myself, you know, this guy's on Teen Wolf now and he's he's fairly popular, but I'm like at some point I think he's going to be a lot more famous than what he is even right now and that happened really quick after that yeah. so i remember it was him in the hallway of the school and he was giving a really kind of crazy performance so i remember saying he's good this kid is so good um at some point i think i'm going to see him in a lot bigger projects and then of course that that happens but yeah i think that was that was probably one of my favorite things that episode when when boyd styles kind of came to you know the new gets in a part of his thing you know his kind of the end of his journey or whatever yeah that's probably one of my favorite ones that and the i think episode what was it 6a like 610 or whatever when the two boys went off in the jeep and you heard like there's a body found in beacon hills yeah which to me was actually the more actual end of the show i felt like yeah it, it was seen a lot of it's an ending shot i mean it's an yeah. ending shot <laughs> i was like that that was kind of the end of the show i felt like that's where the show officially ended and then you know season 6b was kind of just like a valentine's day gift <laughs> you know, to the rest of the fans that you know well here's more of this but we kind of ended it there because they graduated high school so technically they're no longer team wolves <laughs> what kinds of things do you take into consideration when designing a makeup for an actor who will need to be in costume and makeup for very long shooting hours uh, well, that's a really good question. That would have been Ian Bowen. Had we known that the costume was going to be as heavy as it was, we probably would have covered his face even less. I, I just don't think there's any way to really get around it because when we were shooting it, it, it had to be 105 degrees in that stage. Do you remember that, Will, those days? Yeah, that, that stage was was rough. It was, of the two stages, that's the one where you didn't want to be because that's where we had the Nematon set where we put that in the big white room was on that stage there was really no way to to know what all the variables were going to be so we, we tried to keep everything pretty light so they weren't wearing just tons of silicone like obviously if you know that they're going to be doing a lot of heavy stuff you don't want to cover like their whole forehead and their whole top of their head in silicone because it doesn't breathe so it would be literally like wearing some kind of like a swimmer's cap and you would just be sweating and then all day you're trying to fix like the edges coming open or, or sweat coming through it. So we tried not to cover the tops of their heads. We, we knew on Team Wolf especially that even though we did a lot of night shoots, we did a lot of hot shoots. We always took into consideration we don't want to cover them completely. I mean, the Ghost Riders, those things were probably the most miserable. Those and the Dread Doctors are probably the most miserable things we put anyone through because the Ghost Riders were silicone masks that pulled over and you just sweat inside and it was just dripping sweat the whole time. But they looked really cool. But they look great. <laughs> so pain is temporary, film is forever. <laughs> How do you typically collaborate with the people who work on post-production effects, like the CGI artists? I love CGI. I, I love the people that do it, and I love what they do with it. I think it's uh, I think it's a fantastic tool. I get along with them. Like John John Gross was the the visual effects guy in this. He was fantastic, and we still talk. We still once in a while are just like chatting it up or whatever. He's a great great guy and he would he would help us out like if there was something where something was messed up or we did a take but like one of the lace pieces was coming loose and then they moved on and we noticed it later we would be like oh is there any way to touch that up and he would go back and fix it everyone always assumes that we don't like the digital team i think it's it's like when you're doing a painting and you have an airbrush and you have regular standard brushes it's just like what 
which of those brushes do you use on which part of the painting? That's kind of that's kind of where it is. I feel like it's another tool. I think post production fixing things in post is great, especially on some of these TV style shoots. Like back in the '80s, they would get all this time to do it, and then if you had a problem, they would have to let you step in and do it. There were times on Teen Wolf where it was like, we don't have time. You know, we'll we'll let CG fix it, and that's that's kind of become the thing now. Is you just realize, well, there's a certain amount of stuff that they go back in and they just tweak. Or fix it's just it's the way that the industry works now but i i love all the digital people we talked a little bit earlier about jeff giving you a design for a creature and then you kind of suggest well what if we add this what if we tweak this how much input did you usually have on the look of a teen wolf creature I like we had a lot of input. We would always run it by Jeff first, though. You would always tell him, we're going to, we were thinking about doing this. What do you think? And nine out of 10 times, you'd be like, that's awesome. I love it. Just go with it. I, I never felt like there was any ego with him. Like he would always have his idea of what he wanted to see. But if you had another idea that might even add to that, he was always open to it. It was never, it was never like some of these people where it's like, no, this is my idea and you can't, you can't add or do anything to it. It was always a collaborative thing. And I, quite frankly, I always loved to just sit in that, in that conference room with him and just go through ideas like what about this what about this I, I think probably one of the hardest ones we ever had to do was the beast of jevedon because it was just the way that it came about it was like the way like how are we going to pull this off and it ended up going digital because there just wasn't a way to do like a huge suit like that on, on the budget so we, we had a lot of input and i think one of our inputs for that one was that you know this should be a cg creature because it's just it's huge it's a hulk and in order for us to do it it's going to cost us much money and you're going to have to get someone in this huge bulky suit so you know, we had a lot of input on on the way it looked and on some of the ways that we did it too so that was that was very fun getting to collaborate was, was a good time especially with jeff are there any changes, like suggestions that you came up with for the look of a creature that stick out that you remember like, oh, that was my idea for that one? I know it's been a while. Well, um, the Hellhound. Uh, we, we came up with the idea for the, the lava, to paint the lava in the cracks with the, the wildfire paints. We came up with that idea, I think. And that was, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I think literally we showed them we showed them a, a test of it. We did a test and I, I can't remember if it was Russell or Joe Janier or maybe it was Jeff like turned to us and said, You just saved us X amount of dollars in visual effects. <laughs> because it was gonna be so hard to do it and VFX tracking all that stuff onto him while he was moving and fighting. And yeah, I think probably the, the visual effects team was probably like, Yeah, thank you. that was one where we collaborated too because they put in all the little cinders and things coming out of the cracks i feel like it really shows that all the departments really like worked together well on teen wolf and that helped it come out to be like such an amazing product no one was trying to like upstage anyone else or they weren't like communicating it all just seemed like it really came together from people working very hard and working together everyone had your back and you were always going for the one thing it was never let's try to mess with these people and let's try to prove that what we're doing is better than them. No, it was always like, they've got your back. Right. And we're all just trying to make this one thing happen. We're trying to get it out there. If you could do special effects makeup for any TV show currently airing, what would it be? Probably the one right now would be if I ever got a call to go and do a day or two on Mandalorian or any of the Star Wars shows, that would that would be a bucket list thing for me. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. Do some little touch-ups on Baby Yoda. <laughs> what was a, a normal day like working on Teen Wolf? Teen Wolf had long days. We we had hard times getting makeup artists to come out and work on Teen Wolf because they, they knew the hours. And they're like, oh, yeah, you work on Teen Wolf? Yeah, it's like, oh, I'm busy that day. <laughs> but they had heard about the hours, and Will can attest to this. 
So there, there were days we did like 28 hour days. And the thing is with these makeups, usually by about hour 12 or 13, the makeup is cracking or starting to come off of the face. Um, and there's not a lot you can do. I mean, you can, you can keep doing stuff or you can replace it, but it's just, you have to roll with the punches and just do your best to keep it on there, especially when they're sweating profusely or whatever. Yeah. There, there's kind of a time range on some of these things. And I, I would say Teen Wolf, we pretty much pushed the time limit on some of these. Yeah. You would just start seeing little things opening up and you would try to go and fix it. And it's like, it's not staying. There's too much sweat under there. We just always, we were so ambitious all the time. And then we've ambitious. only got seven or eight days to shoot. Yeah. Do you have a favorite creature? from the whole series, a favorite monster you got to work on? I do want to say, I I think it probably had to be the Hellhound. Mm-hmm. Just because, it, you know, working with Ryan, Ryan's like such a goofball. He was so much fun to work with. And we spent a lot of time with him. He, he was probably, it was probably one of the most fun, fun creatures we ever got to do on the show. That, and I would say Kate Argent as the, the Nawal. The Nawal, yeah. The weird, the wear jag was a lot of fun too because she was a blast and th- those were just fun makeups to do they were a lot of fun and they, they usually required two to three people because there's just so much coverage so th- those two were probably my favorites that's fantastic they both look amazing like they're yeah. so radically different makeups you know because like ryan's is just basically he's like a naked guy with all these cracks and fire coming out. And he's like, you know, you can see it's like this dude within with like Kate, she has these amazing teeth and just this, the the colors on her skin and then yeah. the, the spots, the leopard spots or the jaguar spots and and everything. And it's- like the colors were so unexpected, but like gorgeous. It just worked yeah. so well. Well, the, yeah. the thing about that with, with that was also, remember how you were saying that the plastic piece that would go over, we had those for Kate. Oh yeah. So- we made the plastic pieces that went over and they had the holes cut nice. out of them and we would airbrush over to get the spots in the same place. But then Kenny Myers did this amazing kind of beauty makeup on her. After we would do the makeup, he would go in and just do this very subtle, beautiful kind of like he would put like this kind of gold rim on her eyes and just to kind of keep the, the beauty going with her. So she was the one that didn't actually go to the beauty chair after us. Oh, wow. Nice. Kenny would do her beauty makeup and it always looked great. He would line her eyes and do everything. And so she still looked really like pop, even though she was <laughs> to rip you apart. As we like to say, scared and horny. So, yes. yeah. so there you go. Oh man. Those are yep. two fantastic monsters. Okay. If you could be any Teen Wolf creature, which would it be? You know, I would say if you're the Beast of Jevedon, no one would ever cut you off in the grocery store with a car. <laughs> um, yes. You could just look at them. Uh, any of the wolves would have been fun. Any any of the wolves, I think, that would, um, with the healing, like, it'd be cool. Like, anytime, you know, you accidentally smash your hand with a hammer, oh, it healed. And then I can also do, like, this cool thing with my brows. So people, you know, if I'm having a bad day, people will leave me alone. Just a werewolf would be fun. It would be a lot of fun. Well... Are there any projects you have coming up that you could tell us about? I did get hired on to uh, this season of Fear the Walking Dead so uh, for KNBFX. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I, I got to, right after quarantine stopped, I got a call from them to come out and finish season six and then stay for season seven. So Nice. I've been awesome. December. So after a, a pretty much like seven months of not having work, this has been kind of a blessing where you're like oh yeah. it's nice to return and have a weekly paycheck and yeah i mean you still got to wear the ppe you still got to wear the goggles all that stuff we're doing it safely um but it's it's been great it's been great it's really hot in texas so that's fun for prosthetics but uh, <laughs> i can't really say anything about the show because yeah 
AMC would kill me, and I'm sure my bosses from D&D would like that. Fantastic. That is, I'm very, very happy to hear that. Hopefully there will be a sequel to The Wretched, hopefully next year. I'm not sure, but that's uh, that's one I've got my fingers crossed for, because from what I read, it's going to be way nastier than the first one. Ooh, nice. We like to hear that. Yeah. Wolfies, we had an absolutely fantastic time talking with Eric Porn. And if you want to hear more, because this interview was almost two hours long, you should become a patron at patreon.com forward slash RTBH podcast to hear all the awesome goodness that we had to cut out of this interview. But now let's get back to spoilers. A problem I have with Teen Wolf is characters never apologize to each other. A lot of characters screw over other characters when there's no need. That is definitely true. There is a lot of emotional stuff that happens in Teen Wolf and a lot of trauma that characters process. And I do think that that is another of the core concepts of the show is how you process trauma. Right. But Teen Wolf does sometimes have an issue where after something happens, there isn't really meaningful discussion of it anymore. Right. This is a great example of what goes on between Allison and Lydia in this season. There's never really, they don't have like a come to Jesus meeting later. It's not like Lydia's like, hey, now that I know about all this stuff, why the f*** didn't you tell me about all this stuff? Mm -hmm. Because like, yeah, Lydia can be kind of a bitch sometimes too, but she never does anything that deserves this kind of treatment, especially not this season. Like maybe more early on, she's very self-obsessed, but that's really not the case this season. She's just dealing with a lot of issues that would be easier for her to process if Allison were there for her as her best friend and as someone who's knowledgeable about what is actually going on. And you're right, Calissa, there's never really... They never really address that going forward. Mm -hmm. Scott should be apologizing to Derek. Allison should be apologizing to Lydia. Actually, everyone should just sit down and apologize to Lydia. They can take turns bringing her flowers, dinner, whatever, to apologize for keeping her out of the loop. I actually, and I mean, I think I've talked about this previously. I I feel like Styles. I feel like, is the least responsible, but I do think he still should have told her, but it's kind of like, Yes, he's very dedicated to Lydia, but it's not his secrets really to tell mm-hmm. because Scott is the werewolf. Allison's the one with the hunter family. So it's really like, I feel like he's trying to do best by Scott by keeping the secret and being like, it's Scott's secret to share whatever he's ready for it. Or Allison, as her best friend, should be the one to tell her about the hunters and the werewolves. Right. But she doesn't and I feel like it actually does kind of like hurt Styles to not tell her because I feel like he wants to mm-hmm. and he does feel like she's I think he kind of gets that she's struggling but yeah he just can't he doesn't feel like he should be the one to do that and I think going back to Scott and Allison making each other selfish sometimes Styles understands when your relationship related issues are not the number one priority. Like he wanted to be there for Lydia as a friend. He probably wanted to be there because he loves her and, you know, wants to have an emotionally significant relationship with her. But he also recognized that in the scheme of things, what really needed to happen in that moment was for him to go inside the school, use the key and try to get the bestiary. Like that is what needed to happen in that moment. All other things being equal, he would have wanted to talk to Lydia. That would have been his preference. Right. 
but he understood like with the game, the big game in season one, when he was going to get to play, he understood sometimes I want things and they're just not the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I can't have those things because there are other things that I need to be focused on and miles to go before I sleep. So right. I feel like Styles would have liked to tell her. And I think that you can see that a little bit in Abomination when he gave that very almost Shakespearean aside of like, there's nothing you could possibly say in this moment that I would think was crazy because we in the audience understand the fullness of that statement. Lydia doesn't because she right. doesn't know about all this stuff. But we in the audience are like, yeah, there's definitely nothing that she could say that you would find crazy because we're lizards, you know? Right. But I think he would have really liked to tell her, but yeah, it's not as much his place because he personally doesn't have as much to lose by more people gaining knowledge about this stuff the way that Scott as a werewolf and Allison as a hunter do. They're kind of representatives of both sides of that equation. And the other thing is, Styles would love if he and Lydia were best friends, but they're not. They don't have that kind of relationship as much as right, he would have right. to. Yeah. But she and Allison are supposed to because they're best friends. And I think that goes for Scott a little bit too. Like, yeah, Scott probably should tell her just because he does have a lot of knowledge and he obviously feels some degree of responsibility for other people, even if he personally didn't do anything to cause whatever they're going through. Right. But he also doesn't really have that kind of relationship with Lydia either. You know, she's kind of, Mm -hmm. she's the girl that his best friend likes who kissed him when he was like a little bit out of his mind. Like that's basically the entirety of that relationship for him. So I I don't really hold Scott as accountable for holding back from Lydia as I do Allison. But Allison was like kind of a huge asshole in this episode. I love her, but she was a dick. Yeah, I agree. I just feel like, um, you know, we get kind of Scott already feeling like he's, wants to step into like a leadership role and as Derek acknowledges he's already alpha of his own pack and it seems to suggest that Lydia and Jackson are part of that pack for reasons footage not totally found but yeah but I mean like that's what like that is the claim yeah that's what the show is giving us like from conversation from night school and everything so I feel like as Alpha of his own pack, that includes Lydia, it makes it his responsibility to tell her. I mean, I still feel like Allison's like the most responsible, but I I do feel like there's a strong argument for Scott should tell her. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, I could see that. But as always, the person who's really going to bear the brunt of the consequences here, as we know, having seen this season before, is Derek. (laughs) Poor Derek. Derek, Derek is going to pay the price tag on this one, as he often does. Yes. If there's a price to be paid, it's going to land on your boy, Derek. Okay, so I have some questions about the interaction between Lydia and the young Peter in this episode. So, like, when Peter carries Prada over to Lydia, Peter isn't really there. Does that mean the dog isn't really there either? No, Prada's levitating. Got it. <laughs> My guess is that Prada just came back. And whip past her. Gotcha. Or so she's like holding her own dog as it's all happening. Yeah. And then she tries to kiss herself. She's like Jackson in that way. Well, if I looked like either Jackson or Lydia, I would be trying to kiss myself all the time. When I think about me, I kiss myself. There you go. Is that how that song goes? <laughs> Something like that. So That's what that song means. Why do we think that Lydia was sitting in Allison's room in the dark? 
I actually just went and looked at the shooting script and it doesn't specify that she's sitting in the dark. It just said she's been sitting there waiting. Really? That's interesting. Mm -hmm. That is interesting. If she's not sitting in the dark in the script, I'm guessing they just changed it on the day to be like, oh, that would be weird. So maybe that kind of just creates a, that creates nothing, you know, where it creates a moment that has no meaning just because they were like, wouldn't it be weird if Allison came into her room, flicked on the light, Lydia was there instead of she just comes into the room and she's just already sitting on the, on the bed. So I feel like maybe just on the day they were like, oh, let's turn off the lights. She turns them on and, oh, Lydia. <laughs> suddenly wondering- Lydia, the sequel to Suddenly Derek. Yes. I was wondering if maybe it has something to do with like, Peter. Maybe Lydia didn't actually come there to talk. She just kind of like woke up and found herself there. Mm. That's cool. That's a very cool idea. Maybe Peter was, yeah, like controlling Lydia or like, you know, she was hallucinating and everything. And I don't know, maybe he was in there like trying to like find out information or something. That's an interesting idea. Yeah, that is something very much that Peter would do. So he's like Mm -hmm. controlling her and doing reconnaissance. Also, you know, since the light's off and she's sitting on the bed, what if like before she had this dissociative episode caused by Peter, she was actually going to bed. Like she was sitting on her bed, Mm -hmm. the lights were off. And then she kind of just like, there was a moment and suddenly she's sitting on Allison's bed in the dark. That would be very cool and scary. Because I feel like, yeah, she, she doesn't fully seem like herself. But then I feel like once Allison like starts like snapping at her, then like, oh, you know, I need someone to figure out this like archaic line. And then she kind of just like goes into like pure Lydia mode of like, I can do that mm-hmm. thing. Right. Yeah. She adapts. Like she first she adapts. sort of blinks and wakes up there and is like, what the f-? But then she just kind of rolls with it because that kind of, that's where she is at this point right. in the story yeah. is like crazy shit keeps happening to her. And yeah, she tries to interrogate it and figure it out and try to get the people in her life to help her figure it out because she knows they know something. Mm-hmm. But also because they're not sharing that knowledge with her, she's kind of at a point where she just has to roll with it because what else is she going to do? So it's just like, sometimes I wake up naked in the woods and then I just have to be like, is anyone going to get me a f- jacket? Right. right, yeah. I mean, if she had like come to and started like, like as she was coming to us, Allison was like, you know, uh, not everything's about you, Lydia. Like basically not here to help you. Would she actually feel comfortable being like, Allison, I don't know how I got here. Like what's happening? Right. No, I mean, I think she'd want to like put her shield back up and not show vulnerability because she knows it's not going to get her anywhere. She's tried to be vulnerable with her friends and she's just kind of like getting shat on yeah. basically. Yeah. Like yeah. they're not willing to help her. As we've discussed at length. Yeah, it's really, it's really sad. It's really really sad sad. that so much is happening to Lydia and no one knows because she's just surrounded by assholes at the moment. But yeah, it it just seems so unlikely, I feel like, to just be sitting there waiting in the dark for her. So I, I just feel like somehow Peter was involved in this. And the previous scene we had with Lydia was actually with young Peter, as we come to find out. I mean, obviously time has passed since then, since that was a nighttime scene. And then there was like a school scene, but Mm -hmm. I don't know if we actually see Lydia at school at all. We don't. We only see like Allison and Scott. So maybe like during that entire period, like that day, she was just kind of like under his influence because we don't know what all it took to kind of get everything set up for what it takes to bring Peter back. Mm -hmm. That's true. We don't know how much time she's actually losing. 
Yeah. And how much that ritual required. Mm-hmm. Right. It is so sad for Lydia. And I keep thinking about, you know, Peter and Kate both use a lot of tactics that are straight out of the abuser's playbook. Mm-hmm. But what kind of strikes me on rewatch about Lydia's experience in this part of the season is the degree to which Peter doesn't have to try to isolate her from her friends because they're doing it just fine without his interference. Like at this point in the story, he's not really doing anything to make her feel isolated other than, I mean, he's tormenting her, but not really in ways that should be driving a wedge between her and her friends. He's tormenting her, which is driving her to her friends for support. And for no outside reason, they're just denying her that support. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because we had the whole like, Canada seeks a friend, which obviously turned out not to be correct anyway. But Allison's like, you know, it sounds lonely. Or Merle points out that it's lonely. And Allison says like a teenager and stuff. But she doesn't seem to recognize how lonely she's made her own best Best friend. friend there. Yeah. And even when they suspect that Lydia is the Kanama, no one really thinks about that. And what we're actually getting with young Peter is, yeah, like Peter is tormenting her, but when he's presenting himself in his younger form, he is actually kind of offering her a friend. So when yeah. he's willing to listen to her and like be there for her whenever she needs support. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I feel like what ends up happening isn't so much that Peter is creating vulnerability in Lydia. It's that her friends are creating vulnerability in her and he's exploiting it. Yeah, exactly. You know, but they are kind of a part of that root cause not as intentionally as Peter is and they're teenagers and, you know, they're not adults and can't be held responsible for their actions in the same way that Peter can. But there is definitely some blame that rests on their shoulders for just how, awful of a time Lydia has at this point in her arc. Yeah. That concludes this week's episode of Return to Beacon Hills. We hope you had as much fun listening as we did talking about all things Teen Wolf. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. Join us here next week when we discuss Season 2, Episode 7, Restraint. Rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast goodness. Five-star reviews, get a shout-out. Have a great week, and we'll see you again soon. Return to Beacon Hills. Dude, it's Beacon Hills.